dear Father, we just approach you, just lifting up our voices and returning the breath you gave us. There is no one like you. There is no one beside you. There's no one that could do what you did for us, Lord. There's no one that could do what you did for us. You stand alone. You are holy. You are worthy of all of our praise. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And you have rightfully taken your place as, as King of our lives. Lord, your goodness is it's just, it's just too good. Your love is too good. Your, your blessings you give us are too good, Lord. And we fall short, and we don't give you the praise that you need. So, Lord, we're asking before we approach the sermon, before we approach your word, that, that, that we put our hearts towards this so we can give what we can. You have given more than enough to us. Let us just give our, give our time, give our energy. Help us give this back to you right now. Like I said, you, you did what no one else could or would do for us, Lord. You lowered yourself and died on the cross for our sins so that we could have eternal life so that we could worship you. Help this be a reflection of our heart because we want to reflect you, Lord. Please be with Morgan as he's about to preach. And Lord, we love you. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Please feel free to take a seat. Jesus is Lord, and he tells us what to do with our lives. Jesus is Lord, and he tells us what to do with our lives. Does that scare you, or does that excite you? Jesus is Lord, and he tells us what to do with our lives. Is that constricting, or is that invigorating? Uh, about a year ago, Allie and I bought this new uh, shelving system. The box arrived, and, you know, it's always so intimidating. You take the stuff out, and there's so many parts, and uh, she talked me into building it. And so I start start after it, and about an hour into it, I actually have blisters on my hands from the screwdriver, and the thing sort of looks like it's supposed to, but there's just like a little bit of a wobble, uh, and so it, it finally occurred to me when I got to one of the very last steps where I needed to use a bolt, I popped out the bolts out of that little, the little packet thing they give you, and it occurred to me that for the last hour, I had been screwing the wrong bolt into the wrong places. Uh, the blisters on my hands and the wobble were proof that I had been trying to make something that was too big fit into a hole that was too small. See, they thread those bolts and the nut to fit perfectly together. They were made for one another. 
I probably would have been done in 30 minutes had I been using the right, the right ones. Right? The, the bolt and the nut were made for one another. They complement one another. They fit seamlessly together. Well, the commands of the Bible are the grooves which God has cut out for our lives to flourish. The law that God gives are the perfect guardrails, the perfect ruts that fit perfectly with how God has made you and I to live. Uh, when I think about the law, I, I naturally sort of struggle with its authority. I struggle with its inflexibility. But for me, most of all, what I think I struggle with and I think so many people struggle with is we struggle with the goodness of the law. How could the law be good? How could it be good that we have a Lord, that we have a King who tells us what to do? So we were made, created, formed to live according to God's law. And so when does God's commands, when does His law become good news to us? God's law becomes good news to us when we have become exhausted trying to live our own way and found that it only leads to death. God's rules, God's lordship becomes good news to us when we have tried and tried and tried to figure out life according to our way and only found that it led to a bankrupt life. So what if we left here today receiving the commands of God as gifts of grace? What if we left here today believing that Jesus is Lord is actually good news that sets us free? Psalm 19.7 says this. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Now that part we're good with. That makes sense, right? The law of the Lord is perfect. Cool. But it's the second phrase that, that we have a hard time with. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. David, who wrote Psalm 19, could say that. As we're going to see today, Ezra could say that. Jesus could say that. And my prayer, my aim, my hope is that all of us would be able to leave here this morning able to say that. The law is the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Ezra chapter 7. Uh, we've been going through the book of Ezra this year. And we're just going to be looking at the first 10 verses of Ezra this morning, of Ezra chapter 7. I would love to, to read it. If you have a Bible, if not, it will be on the screen. You can follow along. This is... Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitu, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Meriot, son of Zariah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, 
that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. God, this morning as we open your word, we ask that you would help us to see the goodness of your law. Lord, that you would help us to feel the freedom of the lordship of Jesus. Lord, that we would run out of the slavery of our sin, that we would run out of the slavery of our own intuitions, and we would run into the green pastures of your good reign of our lives. Lord, this is not something that we would naturally receive. This is not something that we would naturally embrace. And so we need your grace this morning. We need your Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, to humble us, and to make us receptive to your word. God, as I seek to teach your word, I pray that you would actually ultimately be our teacher. It is you that we need to hear from. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to have four points today. The first three points... Uh, we're going to be talking about why we receive the law as good. Why should you and I receive the law as good? And then the fourth point will be how we receive the law as good. And so first, the first reason why we should embrace the law as good is because we are raised up from death. We are raised up from death. Finally, if you've been tracking with us, after six chapters in the book of Ezra, we are finally introduced to the man himself. And what are we told about Ezra here in chapter 7? We are told that God brought him out of exile uh, where he was enslaved in Babylon. Verse 6 plainly tells us, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. So if we're going to reflect, if we're going to understand what it meant for Ezra to come out of exile, we have to think for just a minute about what it meant for him and the Israelites to have been in exile in the first place. What did exile mean to them? Well, the first place that we see exile in the Bible is actually back in Genesis chapter 3, when God had made the first man and the first woman, and he had told them uh, that if they broke his law, they would die. And so Adam and Eve, they sin, they rebel against God, and what does God do? They don't immediately drop dead physically on the spot, but something worse happens. Adam and Eve die spiritually to God. And as a representation of this break in relationship, as a representation of this severance between the heart of God and the heart of man, God exiles Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, out of the place of his presence. Because for them, for people who've been made to live life with God, to be exiled away from him is death. I want us to think for just a minute about why it is that to be cut off is to become dead. Why is it that to be cut off is to become dead? 
on June 23, 2018, a 25-year-old uh, Thai soccer coach took his 10 uh, players on a little hike through some caves. And I just want you to mind, put yourself in this situation. I bet you we have some 25-year-olds in the room. Imagine you're 25. You've been entrusted with these boys, uh, ages 10 to 16, and you think, man, this will be a great team activity. I'm going to take these boys on a little hike. We're going to go check out this really awesome cave. And you, you go in, you're, you're hiking. It seems like a normal day. Everything seems fine. And in an instant, a monsoon hits. The caves begin to fill with water. And you and the boys that you've been entrusted to care for are now stuck, cut off from life, cut off from food, cut off from oxygen, cut off from families, and weeks go by. To be cut off from life is to be as good as dead. And the picture that we have to have in our minds as we think about exile is that this is who you and I are in our sin. You and I are like Ezra. We were born into exile. We were born separated from God. Our default position, when you're born into the world, your default is death. Your default is that you are cut off from the place of God's presence. And that's why Christianity is more than us just trying to be better people. It's why Christianity is more than us just trying to find other like-minded people who we can, have, who we can live our lives with. It's even why Christianity is more than just trying to get a second chance at life. No, Christianity is nothing less than being raised from the dead. And then for this God who's raised us from the dead to teach us how to live with him now that we aren't dead anymore. So when it says, this Ezra went up from Babylonia, this was a reversal of exile. It was as if God was raising up his people from the dead. Uh, there's, a, there's an awesome chapter in the Bible, Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel prophesied during the time of exile, and he saw this awesome vision. It was just this valley of dead, dry bones, and then he got to witness these bones come to life. And when God tells him in Ezekiel 37 what's happening in this vision, he tells Ezekiel that he is going to bring his people up out of their graves and bring them back into the land. To be brought up from exile is to be raised from the dead. Uh, one of the things I'm going to be trying to argue this morning as we work through Ezra 7, both honestly this week and next week, is that this passage is intentionally connecting both back to the exodus that happened in the second book of the Bible and also forward to Jesus because the exodus is the pattern of salvation. Sin puts us into the slavery of death, and so salvation brings us out of the slavery of death. And so we're going to be seeing some clues about how this Ezra chapter 7 is connected to the Exodus. The first clue that we get is in verse 1, if you've got your Bible. The very first phrase there, it says, now after this. Well, what is this after? What happened right at the end of chapter 6? What happened right at the end of chapter 6 was the Passover. The Passover, this is how God brought his people up out of death. God came and he rescued Israel out of Egypt. But he brought them out of death through death. 
Last week we talked about this. On the same night, everybody in Egypt experienced death in their house. Every single home had death. It was either the death of the firstborn son or the death of a substitute lamb. And that's why last week you and I, if you're here, we took the Lord's Supper together. Because Jesus, when he was at the Passover celebration with his disciples, he took the cup, which was with the wine, and he took the bread. And he said, this is my body that I'm laying down for you, and this is my blood that I'm pouring out for you. And he wants us to know that when God brings us out of death, it could only come at the cost of life. That when you and I are brought up from the dead, it only happens because Jesus was put to death. So Ezra's exodus comes after the Passover. And then our second clue that this is an echo of exodus is found in this specific phrase. Look at at how he says it in verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. Now, if you were to flip to the back of your Bible, don't do it now, maybe later, and you were to put your finger on Babylon, and you were to put your finger on Jerusalem, you would realize that the trip from Babylon to Jerusalem is not up. It would be like being in New Jersey and saying, I'm going up to South Carolina. That's not up in any way. So why would he do that? Why would he use this phrase, up from Babylonia, brought up from Babylon? Well, the reason is because that is the same way that God describes the Exodus. That he was, yes, bringing his people up out of Egypt, but more than that, he was raising his people up from death. So if you're a Christian, it means you've been raised from the dead. So, therefore... There is nothing in your casket of sin that is worthy of being brought up out of the grave with you. This is how the Apostle Paul says this in Colossians 3. This is a clear command for us. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices. God didn't raise Israel out of Egypt so that they could keep on living like Egyptians. God didn't raise Ezra out of Babylon so that he could go on living like a Babylonian. And when you, when you and I get raised from the dead through Jesus Christ, God raises us so that we can turn around and cast everything that held us down in the bonds of sin back into the grave again. And guys, that's why the law is good. The law is good because through the law, you and I see what needs to get left behind. You and I see what is still clinging in our life that needs to be put down into the death of our resurrected grave. We need the law to show us how to live free now that we have been set free. So, 
The first reason we embrace the law is good is because we've been raised up from, from the dead, from death. The second reason is this, we are raised up to life. We're raised up to life. This is how verse 7 begins. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, son of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began began to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. So Ezra was brought out of Babylon, which symbolizes death, and he was brought to Jerusalem, which symbolizes life. And and here in this section is where we get our next clue that this is an echo of Exodus. There are a lot of dates in the Bible. The Bible is a big book. Uh, There is only one other place in the whole Bible that the first day of the fifth month is mentioned. Only one other place. This is what it says. This is Numbers 33, 38. It says, And Aaron, the priest, went up Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there. In the fortieth year after the people of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, on the first day of the fifth month. See, if, you're, if you got your Bible there, you can see that the first five verses of chapter 7 is just a genealogy of Ezra. And what is that genealogy trying to do? It is connecting Ezra to Aaron. Aaron came up out of Egypt. He, he was raised from death. But Aaron never entered life. See, Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they never actually stepped foot into the promised land. So here's the deal. On the first day of the fifth month, Aaron died outside of the land of life. But years later, the great-great-great-great-grandson of Aaron, Ezra, on the first day of the fifth month, stepped into the promised land of life. Aaron died having been raised up from death, but never actually entering life. But not Ezra. Ezra left death and entered life. I want you to imagine for a second that you were going to be taking a vacation to Disney World. Um, I've been hearing some rumors that people have been to Disney World recently, had a good time. So you've got all your affairs in order. You took your time off from work. Uh, You know, you've uh, packed the car. You've gotten your neighbor to come collect the mail for you. You know, you've done everything, whatever you do when you go out of town. And you get in your car and you drive on down to Orlando and you're all excited And you get there. You arrive at Disney World. But then for five days, you sit in the parking lot in your car and never actually go in. That'd be a sad day. Sad week, rather. That is what happened to Aaron. Aaron got all the way to the edge. He got all the way to Disneyland but he didn't go in. But Ezra did. Ezra was raised up both from death, but he also entered life. As I mentioned already, the Exodus is the pattern for salvation. And this is why Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, 
He walked on the earth, now this is interesting, for 40 days. Now why did he do that? Well, he did it because the resurrection actually wasn't complete yet. And you say, wait a second. He was breathing again. But after 40 days, he walked on the earth. And then where did he go? Where did Jesus go? He ascended into the heavenly places, back into the life from, from where he came. See, for us and for our salvation... Jesus went all the way down into the depths of exile. He went as far down as you and I can go. And then when he came up, he didn't just stop here. He went all the way up into the heavenly places, back to where you and I were made to live. And that is life in the presence of God. But I think so many times you and I actually end up more like Aaron. That we live this sort of half-alive, half-dead experience of Christianity. That we are content with just saying, well, I'm not dead. But we don't actually enter in and enjoy life. It's like we think the finish line of Christianity was getting saved. Or like the finish line of Christianity was just saying yes to Jesus. And then we spend the rest of our life in the parking lot while the newness of life in Christ is right in front of us. That's why Paul goes on to say in Colossians, in Colossians 3, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, so if you're a Christian, if you got raised up from the grave, he says, keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are of of the earth. Why? Because your new home is there, not here. And then he goes on to say this. So he said earlier, he said, put to death, therefore. Now he's going to say, put on. Colossians 3, 12 to 14. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Why do we put these things on? Because we have been raised to life. Our new citizenship is that of heaven. And so we put on the things of heaven. And so why the law? Why is the law good? The law is good because it it actually helps us live the fullness of life in God's presence. I don't know, this newsflash, but you and I actually don't know what gives us life. We need to be told what gives us life. We need to be told that there's actually more life in humility than in self-interest. We need to be told that there's actually more life in sacrificial love than in self-preservation. We need to be told that there's actually more life in bearing one another's burdens rather than judging one another's burdens. We need the Lord Jesus to tell us how to live our lives. That that after we've been brought up from death, that now Jesus tells us how we can experience life. That we've been set free. Now how are we supposed to live free? Listen, if you put to death sexual immorality, 
and put on self-control, you will be more alive. If you put to death gossip and put on kindness, you will be more alive. If you put to death grumbling and put on gratitude, you will be more alive. Why? Because you will be more like God. And God is the only place where true life is found. The law is good because it shows us how to imitate God. That you and I get to be like Him. Set free to live free. So Ezra was taken out of the exile of death like Aaron was, but Aaron stopped short. He died on the outskirts on the first day of the fifth month. But on the first day of the fifth month, Ezra took a step into the place of God's presence and experienced the fullness of life. There's one more thing we need to see about why we embrace the law as good before we talk about how to do it. So the third reason we embrace the law as good is because we are raised up by the good hand of God. We are raised up by the good hand of God. Remember the connections between this passage and the Exodus. I want to point you back to Exodus 13. Exodus 13.3 says, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. And then in the same chapter, verse 9, it says, And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Now, these are just two of dozens and dozens and dozens of examples where when the Bible talks about the Exodus, it attributes the resurrection of the Exodus to the hand of the Lord. And so we shouldn't be surprised then when we get to Ezra chapter 7 that the the return from exile is attributed to the hand of the Lord. Two places, verses 6 and verse 9. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And then in verse 9, On the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. Uh, If you were to ask me when I became a Christian, we we actually had this uh, did this exercise in our small group on uh, Wednesday night. It was it was good. If you ask me when I became a Christian, it would turn into a long story, kind of share some details about my life and, and some things like that. But if you were to ask me how I became a Christian, that is a much shorter answer. I would simply tell you the good hand of God. That we don't raise ourselves from the dead. We don't bring ourselves up out of exile. We don't put life back into ourselves again. That when God brings us up from death to life, it is completely and totally owing to His good hand, His work in our lives. The young boys who I mentioned earlier who were trapped in the cave with their soccer coach. There was nothing they could do. They were totally stuck. There was no way out. They had no food. Oxygen was dwindling. The only way they were going to get saved 
was for someone from the outside to come in and save them. And I love like how the story goes. It's such a good illustration of our salvation. It's kind of, it's kind of weird in a, in a way. They were, they, the people who saved them even felt weird about it. But the only way that they were able to get the boys out of the cave was to sedate them. Because if they had left them conscious, they would have gotten in the way of their own salvation. And that is the picture for you and me. The only way we're getting out of death is if God resurrects our hearts and brings us back to life again. So whether you became a Christian when you're five, whether you became a Christian when you're 15 or 50, or whenever you became a Christian, the only thing that you and I can boast in is the good hand of God. And we forget that our new life in Christ is completely and totally owing to God's good hand. Uh, We get selfish again. We start to compare ourselves with others and maybe think to ourselves, you know, maybe I was just smarter than other people. You know, maybe I just had a good upbringing and my morals were better. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just a little bit better than other people. Guys, when those boys came out of that cave, they didn't say, look how awesome we are. We got ourselves out of here. No, you, you can see they were just saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And that is all we can do as well. When it really hits us that the only reason we have life is because of God, the only reason that we've ever done a good deed is because of God, the only reason that we aren't dead in hell because of our sin is because of God, it changes everything. When we realize that the same good hand that raised us from the dead is the same good hand that reached down literally with his own finger and carved the Ten Commandments on the tablet, it is then that we see that the law is good. That the God who rules us is the God who also raised us. That we've been set free to live free. So we've looked at three reasons why we embrace the law as good, but now I want to look at how to embrace it. How do you embrace the law as good? Verse 10 clearly lays this out for us. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra was a man who had been brought from death to life. Ezra was a man who believed that God's lordship in his life was good news. Ezra was a man who knew that he would enjoy life more if he lived God's way. And so we see four things about how we embrace the law as good. Four things. First, we embrace the law as good by setting our hearts towards it. Setting our hearts towards it. We set our hearts towards things that capture us. And what we see here is that Ezra was captured by the character of God. He was captured by God's way of life. He was captured by just how much God had done for him that he was willing to give his whole heart to living for God. I'm, I'm curious today what you would say your heart is set to. In other words, what is that thing that consciously lives right in the background of all the things that you do? That maybe you, maybe you kind of step out of it to do some work, or you step out of it to 
cook food or maybe you step out of it to do whatever you do. But there's something that has a hold of your heart. There's something that you are set towards, that you're aimed after, that you long for. What we see here is that Ezra had his heart set to the law. Joel Beakey says this. He says, it should not offend us then that this God would demand that we offer up all we are to him in obedience after he has given all that he is to us in his son. And I would add this. It's not just that we shouldn't be offended that God commands this from us. It's that we should be captured. We should be captured by what God has done for us so that we are excited and willing to live our lives for him. That when we see that he's raised us up from dead and brought us into life, it becomes our sole desire to live a life pleasing to him. Second, we embrace the law as good by studying it. We embrace the law as good by studying it. So when do you study something? You and I study something when we don't already know what we need to know about something. Right? I love this about Ezra. Ezra doesn't assume that he already knows what God wants from his life. He doesn't assume that his good intentions will just sort of somehow figure it out. No, Ezra wants to learn. He wants to be adjusted. He wants his life to be regrooved back to God's good way. And so he sets himself to study it. Um, if you got entered into a contest to win a million dollars, how much effort would you put into that? Uh, maybe something a little less stake, like lower stakes. If you were going to buy a car or a house, how much effort would you put in to analyzing your options and seeing the different prices and looking at the different mileages of the cars? You know, if you were going to be going to apply for a new job, how much effort would you put in to prepare yourself and to figure out what, what, what was there ahead for you? Right? We study things when we believe that it will give us some advantage. We study things when we believe that it will help us and give us life in some way. And that's why there's no better thing to give ourselves to study than to the law of God. How many times have I thought that I knew how life worked, and then I studied God's law only to find, lo and behold, I have been doing it the wrong way, that God was right, that I was wrong, that his way was better than my way could have ever been. Third, we embrace the law as good by doing it. Isn't that your favorite one? We embrace the law as good by doing it. Ezra wasn't just a guy who was just puffing up his head with knowledge. No, he was a guy who had set his heart to actually do what God had said. And this is kind of how I see this at work in my life, that doing God's law is for my good. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was reading in Matthew. I'm, I've been kind of reading in Matthew uh, every day in my, my, my time with the Lord. And uh, a few weeks ago, I was reading in Matthew chapter 18, and I, I ran across a command. And I realized that I had been walking outside of obedience to this command. This is what Matthew 18, 15 says. It says, If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, this passage goes on. There's some other things that it says to do. But for some reason, this particular command just struck me. 
if your brother sins against you, go and tell him. Is that how our logic typically works? The way, the way I've been operating was this. I'm the victim here. If somebody sins against me, no way I'm going to talk to them about it. I'm the one who's been sinned against. So I'm going to sit here and wait for them to come and talk to me about what they've done. And so for about six months, I'd been carrying some bitterness and unforgiveness towards someone. The Lord brought this name of this person to my heart. I read this verse. And I I decided to pick up the phone and I called this brother who I felt like it hurt me and who I was even more bitter towards because he hadn't reached out to me about it. And guess what? I told him how I felt like he had offended me. He asked for forgiveness. I extended it. And two things happened. I got my brother back. And the weight of bitterness and unforgiveness that I had been holding slipped off my back. Jesus might actually be smarter than me. He might understand life better than I do. His logic might actually compute in the world in ways that help me and bring me the fullness of life in ways that I would never consider. So we truly embrace the law as good when we do it. And then fourth, we embrace the law as good by teaching it. Now, I'm sure that some of you think, oh, no, no, that's not for me. Ezra was a priest. Ezra was a scribe. Of course he taught the law, but I'm none of those things, so I don't have to teach it. I can just set my heart to it. I can study it, and then I can do it. But this teach stuff, no, I'll leave that to somebody else. Hate to break it to you guys. That wasn't true in the Old Testament. And it's not true in the New Testament, and I'm going to give you two verses to prove it. Deuteronomy 6, Old Testament, says this, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. In other words, the teaching of the law was not primarily given to a special group or special class of people. The teaching of the law is given to all of us, and especially parents to their children. And now if you're somebody who thinks, well, that was the Old Testament. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. This was the last thing that Jesus told his church. Matthew 28, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority... That's a lot, by the way. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. We're we're pretty pretty okay on that one. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is Jesus, our resurrected King, He's our general. He's given us marching orders. And what does he say? What's included in your job? Teach the law. All of it. All the commands that I've given you. 
So we embrace the law as good, and we set our hearts to it, yes. When we study it, yes, good. When we do it, better. And when we teach it, it's all of our responsibility. It's all of our job. Remember, the same good hand that raised us is the same good hand which gave the law. Every single person here, I would bet, needs to study the law more deeply, including myself. You either need to study the law more deeply so that you can be convinced that you need to run to Jesus for salvation because you can't be righteous in, your, in yourself. You need to study the law more deeply so that you can do it and enjoy life. Enjoy the freedom of life that God has carved out for us. Or you need to study it more deeply so that you can teach it to others. And I just want to leave you with this incentive. I'm not, I really have nothing else to say other than this. I want you to hear what the Bible has to say about the law. This is how I want us to just leave us this morning. This is what God has to say about how valuable His law is in your life and in my life. This is Psalm 19, 7 to 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Listen to this. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, Sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Let's pray. Lord, we see here in your word that Ezra was a man who was not trying to force you to love him by twisting your arm with rule keeping. He was not a man who begrudgingly beat himself into doing things that he didn't want to do. Lord, he was a man who had had a heart change who had been raised up from death to life. And because he knew who you were, he wanted to walk in your ways. He wanted to live for you. He wanted to know what life, your way, was like. And so it captured his heart. God, I ask that you would do that in my life, you'd do that in all of our lives. Lord, that we would long to admit that we don't know what we're doing and see all the ways that you tell us what to do as your grace in our lives. 
to see your commands, to see your lordship as good news. God, again, I just confess, this is not something that we would naturally do. This is not something that our stony, sinful hearts would receive unless you do this in us. So we humbly cast ourselves before you and ask that you would form us according to your word, that you would shape us according to your law. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen.